Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 122 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? I'm checking in from my hotel room in Nashville, of uh, which I am <laughs> checking out of here. I'm kind of pushing the limits here of checkout time. I'm heading to Knoxville and doing an in-person interview with C.J. Lewandowski. The Poe Rambler Boys have a brand new album coming out that is just incredible. Then I'm heading over to Johnson City, Tennessee uh, to interview the great Mike Compton for his new album that's coming out. And oh my gosh, I can't stop listening to it. It's fantastic. So yeah, um, uh, it's great to do these interviews in person. I got to go to Carter yesterday. I walk in uh, and go to the back room there and there's Tim O'Brien and um, and Stephen Gilchrist on the phone with Mike Chemnitzer. I'm like, pinch me. This is crazy. I leave Carter to go to meet with Daryl Anger and Sharon Gilchrist on some tunes I'm working on. And here's Ronnie McCurry. So it's been an exciting day here in Nashville. And I'm really excited for uh, you guys to get to hear these tunes that I worked on um, uh, with Daryl for a few hours yesterday. Six tunes that I five or six tunes that I that I wrote and Daryl added just some incredible magic to it and I'm really excited here so I'll have more information on that coming up here soon. Uh, I want to thank my patrons over there at Patreon. I want to thank Sarah Wiggins. She is the newest Patreon person. I want to thank the couple people who made it to the hangout there too on the other night. And uh, again, the Patreon Patreon pages to be a patron. It's one dollar a month, up to ten dollars a month. You get to pick uh, everything over the. Uh, $8 tier has a bunch of videos. I think there's 71 different videos up there for some different instructional things and kickoffs and in the tabs and stuff like that. And it really helps support the podcast. It really helps support this trip here to Nashville to uh, to get to do these podcasts in person. It's really, really cool to do these face-to-face with people and and uh, just really add something to it. And it was really cool uh, meeting with Steven. He, uh, I mean, I couldn't be any more passionate about building mandolins and you can tell um, and the quality of the instrument that the, the the heart and soul is there too. So it's exciting to talk to two incredible luthiers from Australia two weeks back to back. So, by the way, I want to thank my sponsors. I wouldn't be able to do these in person uh, without my sponsors either. So check out Peghead Nation. Be sure to go to Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, dobro, fiddle, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Peghead Nation has got the greatest lineup of mandolin instructors out there. You got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Everything from beginner to old time to advanced in theory, they've got it all. Courses include high quality multi angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. I want to thank Northfield Mandolins. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And also be sure to check out their Instagram. Their Instagram is fantastic. Pava Mandolins. Pava Mandolins are built in Austin, Texas, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. And Simonoff Books. You really can't have a luthier interview without talking about the ultimate bluegrass mandolin construction manual. Now in its fourth edition, and it's only $44.95. And for $44.95, the fourth edition, which has been fully updated and revised, includes more than 330 color photographs. It's got 21 fold-out uh, F5 construction drawings. It's got fixture drawings. It's got peghead inlay drawings. It comes with luthier signature labels, uh, lessons on tap tuning and deflection techniques, color shading and finishing, everything you need to build your first mandolin just go to simonoffbooks.com all right everybody i hear the maids just down the hall here so i gotta pack up and get out of here i hope you have a great week and enjoy this interview with stephen gilchrist cheers everybody all right now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast take two with Stephen Gilchrist. Stephen, how's it going? I'm good. Great, and thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah, That's thank great. you so much for doing it. Um, we were just talking here. Uh, this is your first trip back to the States since 2019. Yes. So. Um, so it's just before COVID and post-COVID. So it's just good to try and get the routine of, of coming and delivering instruments and 
being here again. It's good to kind of get that feeling again. And um, I want to really talk to you about this because one of the things I really noticed back in 2019 when you were kind of finishing up delivering a batch of that is how really important it is for you to make that trip with the mandolins and and well actually let's let's kind of maybe just start with that part first because it really was really interesting to me from the minute those mandolins are finished in Australia there you have a process that you follow that I find just amazing talk about that a little bit yeah well Building the mandolins is one thing. Um, getting them to their ultimate home is is another thing when you're living the other side of the world. And it's always been an issue um, of preparation and caution and anxiety in a lot of ways because the job's not done until, one, they get here to my distributed Carter village in Nashville and then shipped out to wherever in the continent over here. So there's a lot of process to happen between finishing the final stringing up and the delivery um and coming over here with them is is a way of ensuring that goes as smoothly as it can for me personally because <laughs> <laughs> right. um, they have uh, you have a lot invested and you know it's your whole year's work and uh, you have a big emotional and financial investment with it so trying to do the whole job complete is is important and being here it helps that do the final setups here here in nashville before they get finally shipped out now you don't ship them in cases not to nashville no because all the cases are here so, so this is this <laughs> is blows my mind so it, how do you pack them up you build the pallet or the crate yourself yeah I do everything myself. For a long time, I made little cardboard surrounds that just held the body in, the, in a couple of little places upside down on the strings, and they were padded with jeweler's tissue, and the headstocks were, had little cardboard boxes around them. So they, they f- almost free-floated with minimum contact in, diff- in layers in the wooden crates with all padded with foam. Um, they have, there are occasionally issues with heat, in, in, you know, impressions in the finish that's that's the thing I avoid try to avoid so I always ship my routine is starting the, the batch at the start of the year in Australia uh, and then having delivery after the hot weather here so you know, late late fall early early winter is ideal so I just avoid that that temperature problem because because I don't build I don't finish with lacquer I finish with spirit varnish which is it's all it's susceptible when it's new to to heat um, heat damage so just avoiding that with the cold weather so yeah. that's the routine of it and then you um, they obviously they have to go through customs I can imagine that's that can also probably be a bit of a hang up and getting them here well good old days you just take them down to the local freight forwarder can you send these to nashville please oh yeah okay mate uh, but increasingly especially 9-11 uh, changed everything of course um the paperwork involved has just been you know, ramped up from then but christy here at carter's and uh, she handles all that. Well, actually, the importer has to handle all that. I can't do that from from the exporters, and it has to be done by the importer here. And that's increasingly onerous, um, and it's, it's susceptible to changing. So, as you as you get the instruments finished, the pressure's kind of mounting about looking ahead with the the delivery because you've got to check, make sure all the regulations, all the the society treaties haven't changed, and all the species that you always use aren't getting listed. And um, so, you know, there are all those considerations that builders here, fortunately, they don't have to even think about. But it's um, 100% <coughs> of all my, my work. Has to, I have to consider that all the time. So Wow. Now, and then when it lands in the United States, is it, uh, is it usually a pre- pretty quick process of of getting them from customs and back here to Carter? Yeah. Well, okay. when, when the paperwork's done right, mm-hmm. which it is, uh, it's all pre-done while the instruments, even while they're booked in and before they even leave the airport in Melbourne, a lot of that is, um, is, is done online. 
and done ahead of the ahead of time. So ideally, there's no exemptions and they, they come straight through. But often there'll be little paperwork exemptions where it's often the the carriers sort of internal problems or whatever. But it always always throws a little hurdle up. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And how many did you ship over that? There was a beautiful picture uh, on, on Carter's social media the other day of of all the mandolins and instruments that came in. How many was it total for this trip? It was total for this trip. Well, the total batch was 13, but that included a guitar and a mandolin going to Sydney in Australia. So there were 11 that came through Carter's. Um, that's it's kind of a normal a batch will be anywhere between 10 and 15 sometimes pushed out when when push comes to shove <laughs> <laughs> right um, but yeah a comfortable 10 to 15 so so now during the COVID time so you, you came in 2019 and then I would imagine 2020 starts you have a batch to go did you did you ship them did you send any over at that or because you yeah they came over normal as i would normally do mm-hmm. we changed a few things with the packing the, sh- the packing of the shipment um putting um um travel light cases putting putting them in travel lights first and then packing them in the wooden crates that's okay that's going to simplify that whole process a lot more mm-hmm. um but they came through all fine um and i have my friend hugh hansen here oh yeah yeah he's great yeah and he um he's always a good guy to call because <laughs> uh, it's all local here in nashville mm-hmm. um and uh, and i know hugh really well and he does great work and he's you know he's always ready to you know handle any problem or, or just check things out which he was able to do uh, last year's batch so I, I couldn't get over I literally couldn't couldn't fly there was just the, the borders in Australia were slammed shut right. um, there were a few exemptions for travel for business but it was pretty onerous you had to apply to the to the, um, in the immigration department there for an exemption to travel and and there's very few flights, and so it was just just too difficult. So. Yeah, wow. Man, was it how nerve wracking was it though? I mean, even though <laughs> Hugh, it, they're in good hands, I've met Hugh and he's done some work for me before. Mm-hmm. Super great, super great guy. But uh, I mean, when I met you, uh, in it, it, it's a it's a very uh, it's a close to your heart process of getting these instruments to the owners and and setting them up and making sure everybody's. I mean, you take great pride in these beautiful instruments, you know, and so it must have been hard to. Just send them and yeah. <laughs> not be here. That's right. Like I said before, you you got a lot invested in, in your emotionally for me, um, trying to do the right, the best thing I can. Um, but ultimately, you got you got to trust the process, and uh, and it does work, um, even without my nervous anxiety attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessary, Stephen. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's it, it was fine. So, um, but what what I miss, or one of the reasons, or a huge part of the reasons I, I come here, is not just ensuring, you know, I do the final setups and 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 meet some, you know, ideally sometimes I meet the players, the the, the owners, the new owners, but it's meeting the old owners the, the, and seeing the old instruments, seeing how they've been travelling, because when they're new, they're just full of potential and if I, if you build them right they've got lots of energy it needs focusing and that focusing is playing and time and years all the everything to harden up the animal glue and the, all the resins in the in the wood to to crystallize properly and fully dry out um, and then they become something else they realize the potential and that's for an instrument maker, that's really good information to have to look back. So, because when you're building an instrument, you're trying to build as much power and, in, as you can, but there are certain things you can't build into it, and that only comes with time and playing and seeing those older instruments and setting them up again, <coughs> optimum setups, when they've got that other thing that time has given them is I find really exciting I I get well they've finally got to where 
you know, I, I began building them. They finally reached their <clears throat> sort of acoustic destination, and and they're just really useful instruments that you don't have to fight. They're clear, open, powerful. They're almost, you know, they want to play themselves. They have that, that almost that feeling. To me, it's an emotion I get out of playing them. It's just, whoa, this is inspiring. So, and if they get to that point, that's really. <clears throat> That's satisfying as a, as a builder. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the questions that one of the uh, one, of, one of my podcast listeners sent in to me was to ask you. Um, and since we're talking about it now, is what do you think the sound of your instruments? What's what's in your mind maybe changed from like the '80s to the '90s to the 2000s as far as the the tonal qualities of what you're working on? Yeah. Well, when I, when you first start, when you first start. Well, I didn't have a clue what I was, <laughs> you know, I was just listening to records. Um, and I thought, well, that's the sound. Well, you know, what is the sound when you're actually holding it and playing it? Um, and then you go through periods of, of, of getting success with a certain sound, which in the 80s and the 90s was, you know, I developed the X-Brace, which gave an like, immediate big, thick sound, big foundation to the sound. Mm. Um, and that was received really well, fortunately, because it was it's kind of a sound of an older instrument, but as a new instrument. But actually, some of those things have also gained a lot more mid-range, which what that aging thing is, that mid-range clarity. They've gained that, but they've still got their big, flat, thick foundation, and they're really, I really, I really like to hear them. Um, and then I went through... You know, every time I went to visit my friend Dog David Grisman, <laughs> he had he's got a great a great law. And every time I go to visit him, he'd just come up to me and just play it un, under my right in my face. <laughs> <laughs> and what he was trying to say was, "This is what really works as a professional dog on stage every night, cutting a microphone. You know, this is the sound. This is." You know, you don't have to worry about it. It's going to do its, it's going to do it for you. Um, so that's what the great law does. It's full of mid-range, powerful mid-range that just, you know, can can cut through anything. Um, so then I started experimenting with red spruce and parallel tone bars, which is, and hard sugar maple, which I'd use a lot in the past. But experimenting with that real mid-range sound. But recently, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been trying to blend the both. That's, to me, to me, a sound of a good, a really good mandolin is all that. It's, I want it all. I want it all. <laughs> I want a great, great, rich, gristly bottom end and a strong, powerful mid-range and, and sparkly, thick, fat trebles. And, you know, yeah. yeah, a mandolin. Yeah, <laughs> it's called right, a mandolin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. What came first, um, music playing for you or, or, or building? Oh, music. Mm-hmm. Well, building canoes, building surfboards came first, but at the same time I was playing music. Um, and music has always been the number one driving force for what I do. Just I just get this emotion. Well, mu- music is like that. There's no filter with music. You can't hide your heart can't hide what you're hearing, whether you love it or hate it, whether it makes you well up or whatever. Um, it just goes straight in. And I love that about music. Um, and a good instruments do the same thing. That, to me, it's an emotional thing when I play a good instrument. It's not, it's not a tonal thing necessarily. It's just the way it makes you feel in your gut. Um, and music has always been like that, um, especially when I've heard raw music what I, I think is just real raw acoustic music it has that it's like an it, well Munro called it ancient tones but they go way back I think deep inside sort of latent memories um, and so I was playing music playing guitar when I was about 10 and then mandolin discovered that <clears throat> about 15 years old what was your gateway for the mandolin well of course everybody's <laughs> Heard that solo of Ray Jackson, I think, on on uh, Rod Stewart's you know, Maggie May, but that wasn't wasn't even an inst- didn't think of it as that. The gateway really was probably Norman Blake and, and Tut Taylor. That was that was bang. 
bang, a, a, just a, a door opening moment where this is what they sound like. This is what real raw acoustic music is, played from the heart uh, without any filtering at all, no production, just picking. <laughs> you just, you have to get your skills up there to be able to do this. And that was just, yeah, that was it. There was like a moment where this is what I want to do. <clears throat> I want to make these things. And yeah. So what was your first attempt? What made you decide to, uh, to build a mandolin? And what, actually, what was your first mandolin before you, before you started building? My first mandolin was a, a, totally appalling. <laughs> That's the only way I could describe it. When you've got absolutely no s- skills other than making surfboards and a, like a romantic, artistic sort of heart, you know, just painting and drawing. So I could do all the painting and drawing thing, no problem, but I had no engineering skills. Uh-huh apart from just shaping surfboards, which is not engineering, it's just, again, it's sculpture. So I had all that sculptural thing happening, line form, I could see a good line and that, but I had no way of, you know, (laughs) applying it to spruce and maple, until I met an old violin maker. He, um, Johnny Johnson was his name, he he was a retired engineer, and he's he's about an hour away, I used to hitchhike over as a kid to his place, and just hang out in his shop and I just you know, felt home to me felt just being around skeletal forms of instruments hanging up and and, um, and he really encouraged me he gave me the book that violin book Ed Heron Allen's book violin making as it was and is <laughs> <laughs> which had all information good or bad I'm not sure about violin making but it was a, it was a world again it was an opening to a to another world of the past of, of great craftsmanship and Johnny was really encouraging he, he made me a little thumb plane and which I still use which you which you still have I still have I still actually it's a good little thumb plane for the little volute around the scroll of a mandolin I, I use it so you know it's, it what it said to me was you can do this for the rest of your life there's people called Stradivarius and Guanaris they did it for the rest of their life you know <laughs> right so the the you know the models were set down the you know the inspiration was huge and and just a kid you know <laughs> growing up in a little country area but but you had access to all this potential you know world if you you just dive into it which mm-hmm. is what i did so then um how many i mean was it you built the first one and were did you start right on number two or was it or did it take a a while how did the process work where you're like okay this is i'm dedicating my time to this now well yeah i made one or two i think maybe a little guitar as well the first five instruments were, fortunately, is just all fog to me. <laughs> it's just <laughs> because they were, they, as I said, they were really so poorly made. But they gave me enough inspiration or momentum to, to search out more information and get better at, at, at making things, little jigs and moulds, which took a long time, but that was the... the, the uh, there was a mo- motivation there to do all that from that first couple. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine it's tough to find that information. Uh, when I interviewed, <clears throat> I interviewed Paul Duff mm. last week, and you know, again, this is all. Pre- we're so used to having ac- instant access to everything now. Oh, it's almost ever. like you know, you almost don't remember a time when there was an internet. And you're also you're also in Australia, where this stuff is again mandolin stuff. You can't just go to like a local hardware store and. And you know, necessarily buy something you know that you need to build a mandolin. And you know, what what was the process for getting all those parts and and finding where you are today? I guess. Yeah. Well, there was zero information apart from the records, so I could see, I could hear the instrument on vinyl. I could see the instrument on the covers, um, and there were really cheap poor copies in the music stores you know (laughs) uh, kind of had a little vision of what they were supposed to be and uh, the only drawings I had was that I could draw from the photos on on the covers uh, you know on the albums Um, so initial drawings mandolins were done from those albums so that is wild man they can only be crude there's (laughs) there's going to be no other way Um, 
But the wood supply, I think I used the local wood from the local hardware store. <laughs> uh, and then I go to Melbourne, where I used to go and get the, the records from the import record store, a little place called Discurio. I still remember it well. It was like a little portal into that world I wanted to go to. And they every month they'd get the latest import records or whatever it was. And the rounder records would come in through there. Um, but just up the road was Lamberti Brothers, which were an Italian family who'd moved there in the 20s, I guess, who used to build banjos and all sorts of instruments. But then they, they by then they were just importers of, of violin wood because there was still there was a f- nice tradition of violin making in Australia, still remnants of it then um, from... Um, a lot of the perhaps the, the Italian immigrants, Italians started coming to Australia. I guess early in the in the 20th century, and I, I met at the same time. I met um, Jack Chera, Giovanni Chera. He came out in the 20s with his brother, and he was a mandolin maker. And uh, I used to go around visit Jack, and he uh, he used to show me things. He and he had a a Gibson, a 1921 F4 that um, he'd bring out and said, here's a, here's a mandolin, a Gibson, I have a Gibson, but mine are better. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, just, he was just making for the local Italian community there. It was wonderful. And his yard, backyard was all grapevines. They make their grappa there and... Again, another little world. It's from where I grew up, which is in, in the country. It was, it was where I wanted to sort of spend my time um, creatively. And all these little people along the way, I could see, you know, the connection to Italy and, you know, the, the violins and everything. When did you um, first get into Bill Monroe? Because what, um, everybody, anybody, anytime your name comes up with any mandolin player, or that I interview for this, or that I meet in person, talks about how good of a mandolin player you are, and how um, you really uh, the Monroe style stuff. You've got a really great take on it. And so, when did you discover Bill Monroe? Well, that's very nice, but I think they're being very generous. <laughs> I, like in, anything, when you do it, uh, when you're in, in in the in the zone and you and you focus on something you you know you start to get a thing happening but the first what led me munro was again uh, norman i always come back to norman blake he's just he's just such an inspiration all my life his first album i think um, bringing in the georgia mail with tut taylor playing dobber on it and written by charlie munro who's charlie munro so <laughs> So you'd go and find records with Charlie Monroe, but there was his brother that was playing with him. Bill, okay. Um, uh, you know, once I heard Bill, well, yeah, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, and that's and that's where I got the albums, and that's where I got the I was able to make the the, the patterns for the mandolins from <laughs> from Bill Monroe's albums. <laughs> so thank you, Bill. <laughs> um, and the yeah, just the energy of the music, man. It's just oh man, yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, uh, Did you ever get to meet him? No, I, I never met him. Um, I worked for George Gruen for a year or so in nineteen eighty, and every weekend George would say, "Come out to the because George used to go take instruments out to the opera and come out. And we'll, we'll go and see Bill." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it next week." Because I was, I was, I had a new law or something. I was studying or tracing. <laughs> I, 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 I was just so excited. I was just an excitable boy, um, and I was, I'll, I'll do it next weekend. But next weekend never came around. So. Yeah. And then, I, then when I went back home, that 1981, I was away. I stayed home for 10 years in Australia, just locked down, just building, 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 just with all the orders I was getting from through George. And then, yeah. and then it was... And Mike Compton, by that stage, had bought an early one of mine, and Nashville Bluegrass Band was just taking off. And and Dog sent me a cassette tape of... He said, you should listen to this guy. He's playing one of your mandolins. Uh, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first N- NBB album... And, 
just you know well to me that was Monroe <laughs> that was that was the sound of Monroe mm-hmm. um, and I just but I didn't ever you know say that get to meet Bill himself yeah maybe you know I don't know never meet your heroes or, right yeah well that's I true don't know. you never know man <laughs> but he certainly inspired me inspired me big time yeah his music yeah and then, then learning how to you know, play the music actually to me I always felt that playing that style of music is the ultimate test of a of a mandolin because it pushes it to its limit um, as a, as a player. You know, when, when you build an instrument, you've got two things happening. You got out front, you got the sound of the mandolin, which is it's the audience perspective or the, the listener's perspective, which you know is. You know, hopefully it's really, really good. You know, big, clear sound. The other perspective that people out front don't get, and a good mandolin is what the player gets as feedback, and that's that makes them want to play it. Whether the responsiveness, how easy it is to play, how little energy you have to put in to get maximum energy out, that feedback loop as a player. Um, that's what inspired me to, to play more and more mandolin. That's what I love doing is you're getting that feeling, getting that responsiveness out of a mandolin from a from a player's point of view was, to me, has always been a vital thing about what I do, <clears throat> what I do as a mandolin maker is, is having that perspective as a player's perspective of it and playing. And Monroe, Monroe style really drove that home to me the more and more. Yeah, it's- <clears throat> So some of those older recordings, man, are just like wild. Well, yeah, exactly. I was just thinking about it this morning. What about what is it about Monroe's sound or that mandolin in particular, the law sound? This I don't think it's necessarily typical of all laws, but he's July nine. Um, and to me, it was that recording, or the series of record, live recordings that the Smithsonian put out, yeah. the series one, I think it was. There's, to me, you can hear just that animal in that mandolin and and Munro's playing when he gets up close to that condenser mic and just plays hard it just gets this gristle to it this that low end gristly sort of animal thing about it and I just always have that sound in my head when I'm when I'm building an instrument so, yeah. um, this brings up another question I got actually was um, speaking of the lore I mean obviously I mean the lore is Kind of, you know, it's the, the the pinnacle that seems to have maintained through all this. I mean, lots of in technology and all sorts of things. Old cars don't look like old cars anymore, but old mandolins still look like, you know, Lloyd Lores. And yeah, and you, I'm imagining you probably played quite a fistful of them. What, what do you think? Because there are some that are good and some that aren't as good. And do you think it's is it is it like something with? The builders have maybe more to do with the player, the amount they've been played. What's the? Well, I don't think they're all good for mm-hmm. start. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I think they all have the law tone, mm-hmm. and and I think th- if they're set up well, and they're kept in playing condition, that is not asleep because they tend to go to sleep sure. pretty quickly. Um, but if they're kept in that condition. They're all great. They're all got this just directness to them, which is which is you know what everybody knows about them. But some of the great ones have that that bottom end as well, which is what I try so hard to do with with my building. Um, you know, trying to get that mid range of the law with with that that big bottom, more of bottom end. Then some of the, when, I, when you come across an instrument like that, a law, it's just, well, it's, it's it. That's, that's the sound, you know. And there's, there's some really good ones out there. When was the uh, first time you got to put your hands on a law yourself? Uh, well, I visited in uh, I was, I came over uh, on a trip uh, Seventy-nine year to or to go to because oh, I was getting Pickin magazine at that stage, so I knew where the, these characters were. <laughs> uh, there was, and on my list was okay. I'll fly into Nashville, and I'll go to Gruen Guitars, and I'll get the Greyhound up to a friend I'd met in Bali, I think, a few years ago, in Dayton, Ohio. 
who lent me his old beat-up LTD Ford to drive to Staten Island to go to Mandolin Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> without a map. <laughs> without an indicator working. Why don't you just use your phone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but both George and Mandolin Brothers, Stan Jay and Hap Kuffner, Mandolin Brothers, they both offered me a job. I took a, like, a, I think a, an F4 instrument I'd just finished. Oh, cool. And you'd only been building them at two point or two years Roughly at this point, two years, yeah, three years. Three years uh-huh. Two two years. I'd okay. built forty five instruments by then. Whoa, something like that. But a lot <laughs> wow. of overhaul A models mm-hmm. for the Australian players, Irish, you know, the Celtic players down in Australia. A few guitars, flat top guitars. Um, but yeah, bang, Nashville, you got a job. Bang, <laughs> New York, you got a job. Oh, okay. <laughs> what 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 do I do now? I go home, and I, I go, and I went home with orders from both of them oh wow which Mike Compton got I think got the first one that came through number 51 uh, 53 I think it was yeah 53 no kidding uh, yeah so was this just from them playing them playing like that F4 that you had at that point yeah wow was because you know um, well in all modesty there weren't a lot of builders around mm-hmm. sure know? sure and the big companies, that was their worst period. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, big companies, but, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, there was not much happening factory-wise. So everybody, you know, knew what... Everybody wanted laws because... <clears throat> well, they just called them the old mantelins back then because they, you know, they knew they sounded great. So there were a few people around, I guess Randy Wood and... I know Mike Chemnitz, so he was building for a few years by that stage as well. Nugget Mandolins and John Monteleone. But that's kind of it. There's So I walk in all bright, bushy-tailed with a, <laughs> a monster Celt, a Celtic, a Scottish-Australian coming in. I, I, <laughs> I make mandolins. But, um, yeah, they... <clears throat> okay, well, we need workers here. And I had some skills by that stage so I went back home delivered a few batch small batches to both of those places um, so it was my little <clears throat> calling card I suppose by the time I went there in the start of 1980 I worked with all the guys up in the f- third floor at, <clears throat> at Gruens down the lower Broadway some, you know, Kim Walker was there that year great archtop guitar player maker Matthew Klein who still working in the custom shop and the main guy with the CNC department the custom shop in Nashville Phil Jones who was custom shop in Gibson Tom Ventress just a great um, banjo guy engraver inlay guy so you know all of a sudden I was with my people (laughs) (laughs) right that I'd always sort of you know aspired aspired to to work with and and being around the laws and oh sorry your original question when the no, first, that's us. The first well that first trip to to Gruen's when George offered me a job he, I he, I stayed out of his house and you might want to see this <laughs> and and he brings out a March thir- tw- a March 31st 24 law that of course are tracing and crudely tracing. <laughs> this is better this is better than an album cover <laughs> so that was yeah long-winded question that was great that was awesome so you go back with orders how many how many orders roughly at that point after I left Grun to um, well it was a contract two-year contract to exclusive rights <laughs> uh I, d- I don't even have a workshop at home, George. I just got oh, this wow. little shed. <laughs> so I quickly, you know, rebuilt and re- regathered and myself. Um, and it was just wherever I could, whatever I could send over. Um, and so the first couple of years in the early 80s was whatever orders George would send through, I, I'd, I'd supply and ship them over. But then I'd, after that, there was, there was enough instruments by then circulating because I'd built... 19 instruments that year in 1980 when I was working for George and being around laws all the time everything changed very quickly from, <laughs> from that point as far as my quality and my focus and sound and I developed the X-Brace sound so I was getting that nice big open warm sound um, 
So through the 80s, all enough of those instruments were actually circulating around the festivals and, and I was getting direct orders and uh, so I went back in 1990 for, for IBMA. I did a display at the trade show in 1990 at IBMA and then, you know, met Dorg again for the second time and he, well, I can sell these, man. People come to me all the time wanting a mandolin. <laughs> so he was kind of my mini, my little agent there for a while and we hooked up with Dexter Johnson at Carmel Music about that same time, a bit after that. And then there were just regular batches then, bang, 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 and just... There was a lot of a lot of instruments I built through that through the nineties through through Dexter, distributing them. Um, um, yeah, it was it was it was a real exciting time, but it was a time of real development for me mm-hmm. as far as focusing on that more that engineering side of going from the sculpture side of making instruments to how to make better tools and jigs and. It's kind of the marrying those two worlds together is kind of the key to, I guess, making a living out of it. Sure. Consistent and consistent instruments, you know, quality. That's it's helped with that. Yeah. Was there ever like um, I mean, I guess maybe meat and dog, but was there ever like a tipping point where, where it seemed like, you know, one minute you're it's business as usual, and then suddenly you realize you're like, oh man, I've got a waiting list. Yeah. Well, that happened through Dog and Dexter, through, I guess, that association with Dog. Um, I mean, the instruments have to speak for themselves, but the more you around those sort of people, the more inspiring you, inspired you become and more enthusiastic I became. Like when I first, 1980, that year in 1980, I did a sh- trade show with George, uh, we flew out to um, to the Guild of American Luthiers had their convention at the um, down at the marina in San Francisco, and I had a, a display there. And the the entertainment act for the convention was David Grisman Quintet, which were <laughs> at their all all time peak. It was just amazing, you know. The, the guitar player was the national fiddle champion, Mark O'Connor. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he was their guitar player for a start. <laughs> Mike Marshall, Daryl Anger, and Rob Wasserman on bass and Dorg. But, and Dorg said, where are you staying? Oh, I had like a hotel just down the road. No, come stay with me, man. And so I went out and stayed with him in Mill Valley, his place out there. But th- all of a sudden I was dropped into this world of just of 24-7 creativity, mm-hmm. a world where you're always on. The, the creative juices are always on. And was, that was pretty impressive, yeah. being, being there with those, and being invited to be there with those guys. It was, um, it was pretty special. Uh, I really, that went in deep as far as motivation for, you know, this is what a creative life is. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, pretty amazing time. Yeah, it was great. What um what was it like then? You start getting these orders, and the internet becomes prevalent with people selling their either their spot in line or they're getting their mandolin, and they're definitely selling it for more than what you're probably charging for them slash making from it possibly. What how? When does that come to light? How do you deal with that? I mean, it's got to be kind of a weird, like, flattering, but also kind of like, wait, <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah, that that was a big lesson. This is a big lesson for you young luthiers out there. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't take orders. No, no. <laughs> You're hardwired to take orders sure. as a struggling luthier when you're starting off. Yes, yes, yes. The word is yes. <laughs> you can't say no. It's like starting to play as a musician. You take yeah. every gig you can get. If you want to make a living as a musician, you're, you're going to take that gig for $25 in the corner of a dump mm. and play for four hours. Yeah, because you've only you... got these two things. Exactly. You have two hands. Exactly. And one, one person. Um, exactly. Um, so the 90s was just flooded with work, just crazy flooded with work. Uh, got to the 2000s where it was just getting a little bit ridiculous. Uh, I was back ordered 
almost a hundred instruments, which in my, you know, I was pretty productive, um, and it represented about five or six years' work. Although, you know, through the through the nineties, I had like a, I always had like an apprentice, a, a couple of apprentices. Um, John McGrath initially, Peter Daffy, and then Justin Sutcliffe, but they weren't ever, ever together. It was just you know somebody helping out through that. So things were pretty productive for me. But it was th- uh, a batch every four months, so three batches a year, about a dozen instruments, and it was getting <laughs> whoa, <laughs> it was getting a little bit out of control. And by the start of the two thousands, the, the back order was just crazy. So. What was the what was the largest amount of back order that you recall? Well, it was about a hundred instruments I was back ordered. <laughs> oh my goodness! When I was just by myself by that stage, just mm. making about oh, maybe fifteen instruments a year. Um, so it was you know about six years back ordered and all pre-sold, all deposited pre-sold, hardwired, which is important to me. If I say you know I'm going to take your money, I'm going to. I'm not going to mess around with it with you. I'm what you pay, what you deposit is the price is fixed. That's so I was fixed prices for about six years in advance, and all of a sudden, you kind of look back. There was like multiple orders coming in from the same oh. same person, um, and then they'd be flipping them. Got, I think I got to the stage that I was flipping them for you know. I think I was getting maybe six grand, eight grand after the, the wholesale price now you see them coming up 20 grand plus you know that, that was becoming the price which is kind of flattering but it's kind of beware do I chase that do I stop taking orders which I did I worked through all the back orders I had took five six years to do that and then what do I do um, <laughs> do I chase so I just set it at the current market price of the resale. Um, and then, whoa, there's a beginning stock market country where you're at the mercy of the market. Right. Which is what I did because that seemed to be, I took advice from some close friends, that seemed to be what this, what everything had settled at. Right. Um, right. So, and, and the price had it's been like that since from 15 years so it hasn't changed but just until recently it's just had a little COVID <laughs> right <laughs> man we're going to talk about that the price of everything went oh, up oh <laughs> jeez shipping was just gone through the roof shipping mm. so yeah that and it became really stressful um, if you wanted to make any alterations you had to think five years in advance all the time like if you want a vacation i had to you know wow. which i've never had proudly <laughs> proud to say that <laughs> um you had to kind of think of that sort of time scale and it was just all of a sudden it wasn't so much fun it was this feeling of weight you know that ma- imagine you got hard fixed gigs for the next five years you know yeah, yeah. At, at the old price right 25 bucks. Thanks. Right, Daniel. right. Sign here, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. That's a, congratulations. You're booked for five years making no money. Yeah. We, which, which just said, well, what you're doing is, is a, it's the market. You know, that's how markets work, mm-hmm. supply and demand. So you just, you know, keep focusing, trying to do the best you can and then charge a reasonable price for, and then market market will do what it wants to do. You have no you have no control over it. So, but your job is to, to do the best you can, play the best music you can, build the best instruments you can, and let them sort that out. The the resale side of it themselves. It's it's really interesting too because I don't know anybody that box at the price of a Gilchrist except for maybe the fact of like oh like maybe can't afford to go crest but i've never i've never heard anybody say they aren't worth what what you charge which is pretty amazing because that's i hear that about all sorts of things all the time and i mean the quality you have the people who play them i mean it just speaks volumes meeting you in person and seeing how much heart and soul and and in emotion that you you put into these instruments i mean it's you're not it doesn't almost, I mean, I know you say you didn't go on vacation, but it's a weird way. It, it doesn't, it, I think job is too 
light of a word for it or doesn't fit right because it seems like it's part of you, you yeah. know? Well, my job is my vacation. <laughs> right. That's how I think. I mean, I get paid to come here <laughs> to Nashville, you know, to hang out with all my buddies and hang out with the best instruments in the world, the old instruments. I get paid for that. That's my job. What? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need to, to go and sit on a beach. I grew up on a beach. <laughs> I grew up building surfboards. So I like beaches. I can go there anytime. Um, yeah, but it's kind of scary. Every, that pricing is scary to me. It's like, whoa, is it? Are they worth it? Um, you know, because <laughs> you always self-doubt. Oh, I am self-doubting all the time. I'm always, and that that actually comes back to playing. The better you get at playing, the more you can just critically analyze something for what it is mm. of its true a musical value. You know, take the market away from it. It's something everything has an intrinsic, true musical value of an instrument, and you kind of always, yeah. yeah. But getting the level of consistency up of good instruments, you know, when I th- what I think when I string it. Th- I think, well, okay, this is going to be okay. It'll it'll be okay, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, just, um, you, in that sort of little window in the ballpark, there, it can it can do itself. Yeah, it can take over now. Um, but it, it's still anxious. I'm always anxious about that. And the price, the more the price goes up, the more that. <laughs> but you know, same people. Will, fork out until recently up to 200 grand 250 I think they peaked at in the you know 10 years ago for a for a law that some of them were maybe worth it maybe not but it's it's another world it's you enter a different world when you start getting up in price like that Um, and you don't know what's emperor's new clothes and what's not you know start to doubt the whole thing a bit but uh, that's why it's just so important not to even get involved with that emotionally just focus on just doing the best job you can and um, you know I don't need more than a dozen instruments you know orders a year I mean what you know I can only do this I can only make so many you know Sure. Well, it's a bit of a catch-22. It was interesting when we were, uh, I got the good fortune to walk into, uh, I mean, you're talking about coming to Nashville and you're like, I get to see all these players, these old mandolins come through, like old friends to see where they've been through. And I walk in here and you're talking to Tim O'Brien with his new instrument. He's got Mike Chemnitzer on the phone and I'm just like standing back here like what? you've got to be kidding this is like this is my day today and um, but an interesting conversation came up with lures is you know like lures are so expensive to get and, and it, young players it's that weird dichotomy of like yeah. young players can't get them yeah. and, and you said you feel a little bit of that too but the, the catch 22 is is if if they were lower somebody who isn't a player is going to buy them and they're going to turn around and they're going to sell it for that amount you know, it's, yeah, it's a weird deal. You know, you just kind of, like you said, it's the market. I think you did the totally smart thing there. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's it is a double-edged sword. Like putting value on something kind of ensures its preservation too. Mm-hmm. Um, or an instrument that will just get get scratched up and dragged around. All of a sudden, if you put two hundred grand price on it. Woo! <laughs> Let's look after this. So it right. has a preservation um, quality to it that's for the long term potential future players. We're not the only people going to live on this planet, you know. <laughs> right, right. And not not the only cre- really creative, talented musicians that are going to be around. They're all it's all waiting out there, mm. so we can just pass on the best we can to them in the best condition. It's kind of an important thing, I think. Yeah. And it's, that's, that's the same thing as getting, as getting talented young players now playing them as well because mm. um, they are, obviously. Yeah, they are yeah. the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you ever built one for you, that you've been making these batches and never built one where you're like, oh, I, uh, I, I, I might need to keep this? Yeah. Um, They've got one now at the moment. I'm kind of interested in what it, it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the whole beauty to me about building in batches. Um, it's the consistency. 
that you get within the batch and batch to batch. I mean, every process is just little micro processes, but I take everything through at once of all, all the different stages and the, to the final stringing up. So they're all, I think of them as sibling rivalry. <laughs> they're just screaming, I'm the best, I'm the best. No. And, and that's kind of true because if I'm doing something that I really like and one, I've, just, I've got the others to compare, okay, and just, okay, you just do the, do the same. So it, it keeps the bar for that batch consistent for me. Um, but there'd be one or two in that batch that, woo, that's not me. That's just that's just the genetics of the wood. Sure. And I love that. I love that little wild card being thrown out there. Um, I've been using a bit of Italian spruce lately. But, again, it all comes back to selecting the wood. <clears throat> I don't just... You, know, you can just buy wood online or whatever, and they'll just send you really nice-looking wood if that's the grade you're, you're purchasing. But that's again, it's like playing. Out out front, you get you get one sound. Out front of a piece of wood, you get one look. <laughs> um, and but when you're playing an instrument, you get that that feedback. Is the responsiveness is important? You get the same thing in wood when you're selecting wood. So if you've got a choice of buying a hundred billets of spruce. Um, just randomly, you get perhaps, I don't know, 10% will just be s special. Mm -hmm. But if you go through a whole lot of wood and just pick out, you know, only, the, only what you think and just keep then high grading while you're there, high grading, ding, ding, what's the loudest, what's the loudest, what's the loudest, you'll condense it down to a, a little package that you'll take home that you know it's not your fault if the instrument doesn't work. <laughs> right. Because right. the wood knows what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I always select wood. <clears throat> and that um, at least eliminates some of the guesswork. So I'm always going for one grade of wood all the time, which is the hardest, the clearest, the lightest weight. Uh, that's where speed happens of energy. So, and that's what you want. The energy in when you hit a certain little ball of energy when you hit a note with a pick, you're putting some en that that amount of energy goes through all the system, all the cycles, all the filters, the, the, the combinations, and it comes out ultimately as energy, as sound waves. As fast as that happens with the minimum drop of energy, that's kind of the little. I think of it like a little river flowing um, and as fast as that happens with the minimum loss of energy I think you just get the biggest sound so I'm selecting trying to select that in when I select wood as well yeah, mm. yeah. But, which is um, this is a question from Paul Duff ah, I a question and um, get back to work Paul <laughs> he wants to know that when everything clears up when when can you guys when you guys going to make a trip down south to uh, look at some some tone woods and drink some wine <laughs> well I don't drink that's right but I go. do I mean I am addicted to looking at tone woods but yeah things are, I think next year we'll be looking pretty better for travel yeah. Australia's done it pretty hard we shut down really fast and hard there yeah. which saved a lot of lives yeah. um, but you know I think Western Australia as we speak still closed um, but it's you know things are looking like hopefully next year I'll be there next year Paul <laughs> perfect there we go um, do you have a, a mandolin that you've come across in your um and you might own it i'm not sure but is there ever has there been like one mandolin that you've played that you haven't built that you were just like this might be one of the best sounding instruments i've ever heard well a lot of the makers i play again when they get to that aging bit mm. and you come across them because i you know i'm isolated down there um i don't see what's happening um new and new instruments so i come up here and and I only see my old instruments, I only see old instruments of other makers, which they're in, the, they start to get into that zone where they become themselves. And like, I just pick up an instrument, and if it's got that immediate crisp explosion, uh, my chemist's mandolins, they do it for me every time. Some of the new Morf um, Northfield mandolins I've been <laughs> playing, wow, yeah, this, 
They're, yeah. al- they're, they're, they're alive. They're great. It's just an instrument has to be alive. Paul Duffy's he's got a couple of, of his, oh, I think it's a couple of A models here at the moment, and they've, they've got it. Yeah, I got an F of his. Yeah. Mm. To me, tone is, is subjective. Sure. But volume, ease of playing, responsiveness is not, and clarity is not. If, if an instrument is fully alive and awake, with, with really wide open throttle, clear, powerful. Its tone is kind of its personality, but it's got to have that wow, bang off the pick sort of feeling, clear, open. And, you know, a lot of those instruments, those makers, they're just doing great work. Uh, their instruments are fun to play. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's good feedback. To, to me, I come over here and it's... I kind of see it as as a, another raw ingredient, the inspiration I get when I go back. Cause I'm, I'm sort of locked away for 11 months. I come over here for a, three weeks or whatever, and I take back that what I've heard and what I've seen and that inspiration, and I try to apply that and always question what I'm doing because I might have heard a, a duff or you know a, a nugget that wow it's doing this thing around this range you know it's always inspiring and i think we're kind of there's no i don't see us as competitors at all it's because we build so few instruments we we can't build any more than you know <laughs> right. <laughs> right. it's only a certain amount of hours of a day and it's just great to see everybody making a living in this world in this game and thriving in it with their own little thing, you know. Yeah. Will Kimball's got his own little sound happening. Lynn Duden Bostel's his own sound. Yeah. So they're, they're all great, just great builders. Mm-hmm. And they come from the same, same direction where it's all about the instrument and the music. Uh, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah. It's, it's friends it's, like that. It's inspiring for me, man, to, I mean, to come to, you know, whenever I get to come to Nashville. I mean, this is the first stop pretty much every time you know if i can get here before they close it's always like a good a yeah. good early late you know time but if not i'm here first thing in the morning and just to, to play just all these amazing sounding instruments by different different builders and, and and things like that like it just i mean i never get tired of it you know it's it's like you said it's just inspiring and i can't even imagine being able to take my two hands and and craft and craft that yeah, That's well, so their cool. instruments are all out there, but when they're together in one one place, yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty impressive <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's great. Well, um, this is a complete nerd question, but you you, you mentioned it um, once or twice as um, talking about the least amount of energy. Ideally, for you, and I know action is completely debatable, but as a builder, I would imagine you have a idea of like what the the G and the E strings should kind of be at height wise, optimally. Yeah, for you for playing and and sound. What what, what is that range ballparkish? Well, it's it's one sixteenth, mm-hmm. um, pretty well ballpark. The bass can go a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. So on a, a, one of those six inch engineering steel rulers, you got thirty second increments. So you know two thirty seconds, two and a half maximum for a for a banjo fighting mandolin <laughs> <laughs> on on the G string and two. On, on the on the treble E, or you can go a little bit lower if you're. So what I like to do is I like to put a setup where, where I'm sh- before I fret, I just have a little build a little bit of relief in the on the treble on the bass side, so the G string because the G string swings, it rotates, it's, it's revolves, from, you know, bigger radius when when it, when you pick it, uh, and then pretty well dead straight on the E string. But really important is to have a low action at the nut. If you know you can have a pretty high action at the twelfth fret, if you've got a high action in the nut, it feels ugh, it feels like you're fighting a beast. But all you have to do is drop the nut action down nice and low, so it's just a fraction above the first fret. All of a sudden, certainly your first position is really comfortable, but you're getting maximum volume ability with your right hand. Um, is that measurement at the then at the first fret or is that that twelfth fret when you're taking, well? You if that? you imagine like when you, when you fret an instrument, when you fret the fret, the next fret is about ten thou, or the string is about ten thou off 
the, the, the next fret. So if you just take that, that first fret and become the zero fret, the, the action is going to be about 10 thou, but plus a couple of thou extra. Because, gotcha. um, you know, nuts wear. And, sure. and you, you, as soon as you go below the action of the, of the fret next to it, you're going to get buzzing. Mm -hmm. But you, if you have it at the action of the fret next to it, as the nut, as set by the nut, you know, you're going to get a clear sound or just a few thou higher. Okay. So that, like, the one sixteenth, that would be at the... At the 12th fret. 12th fret, right. Okay, perfect. But, but that's on the E string. Yeah, yeah. But I gradually increase that 10 thou to about 15 thou plus, maybe, mm -hmm. to the G string. But depending on what I think it's going to be played as, like a hard bluegrass. And I have my string slots separation at the nut and the bridge increasingly wider apart as you go from the E string to the G string. So there's, there's no chance of the strings hitting each other. Right, right. I kind of learnt that from Sam Bush's setup, I think. He has really wide string spacing. But maybe mine's not that, not that wide, but uh, that's what I do as standard. So you get, you're getting an instrument that's delivering as, mo as much energy as possible without any dampening or or buzzing or any any you know, any other noises that you don't want which is just energy wasting energy man this has been so enlightening <laughs> just, what a good time well, you're gonna start you're gonna make your first mandolin so. i know i would i would love to today man yeah <laughs> what are you doing later <laughs> um uh, one last question for you since you um since you're not a drinker and um if if you were to pick up a mandolin what's what's like your favorite song to play right now ah oh uh i like old crazy fiddle tunes all crooked ones shelvin rock i've been playing lately One of um, uh, who shopping, uh, up around the West Virginia, one of the, those sort of area, those tunes up there, kind mm -hmm. of crooked tunes. There. Cool, kind of fun to play. Shelvin, yeah. Shelvin Rock, nice. <laughs> and then, um, actually, or, or I should say, oh, yeah. uh, what I want to want to learn is a tune Mike Compton wrote recently called "Possums in the Pear Tree." He sent me the so notes or I'm really pretty slow at learning off notes so oh, cool. but I want to learn that as well well I'm, I'm heading to Mike Compton's uh, Friday ah. so do you have a question for Mike Compton yeah how do you get the possums out of your pear tree <laughs> perfect Steve <laughs> thank you so much for doing this I really this has been a, just an honor thank thanks, you thanks Patrick it was fun awesome good on you all right. Thanks again to Stephen Gilchrist. Thank you so much to uh, Walter and Christy from Carter to uh, for allowing us to hang out in the mandolin room for for a little over an hour there while we did the interview. That was that was amazing. And thank you all for listening. And head on over to the Patreon page if you get a chance. Uh, I thank you so much to all the patrons who donated again. I been able to get out and do these in-person interviews, which is really really cool, and uh, just adds a little bit to the podcast. I think so. Y'all have a great week. Cheers, everybody.